What would you do if you knew you were destined for greatness? More importantly, how hard would you fight to claim a new fate if you were destined to be nothing? Welcome to the Fantasy End, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author Shelley Parker Chan. Their debut novel, She Who Became the Sun, is out today. Shelley and I discuss crafting hyper-emotional stories, tackling complex gender feels, and the importance of writing what you love. And on that note, why don't we get to the interview? Let's jump right in and see what Shelley had to say. Uh, welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Shelley. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me here. It's always really fun to watch the Fantasy Inn folks uh, chatting on the internet, so this is quite a privilege. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, my favorite is also we have the shared access to our official Fantasy Inn Twitter account, so oftentimes we'll be kicking each other out and logging in to say stuff. Ah, the chaos. I love it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so uh, to start things off, do you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? Yeah, my mom was a giant nerd, actually, which is really strange for like your classic tiger mom who's really obsessed with grades. So she was really into Star Trek and Asimov. So I guess those were the first science fiction um, works I ever came across. And classic Trek, I guess, was like my in. I am mixed race. So, you know, to come across a figure like Spock, who's half Vulcan, half human, uh, was very appealing. And also, like that whole control of your emotions thing. I was a very emotional, awkward child. So like that fantasy of being able to control your emotions was uh, extremely compelling. And so I spent a lot of time walking around as a kid with my hands behind my back, uh, pretending to be a Vulcan, which uh, made me super popular, as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've I've never uh, somehow actually gotten into Star Trek. Uh, I think my dad tried to push me into it uh, when I was a kid, but I was going through like my nerdy rebellious stage where I was like, no, I'm going to go for other science fiction. <laughs> yeah, like I was recently on a panel where everyone was talking about Deep Space Nine in these most like revered tones. And I just felt completely like, oh, I'm a fake nerd. I have not watched any Deep Space Nine. I think I haven't watched Trek since I was a child. And that was the original series. So I feel very dated. But, you know, eh, whatever floats your boat. Yeah, I guess my blasphemy is uh, I've only seen the new movies with Chris Pine. And I think I haven't even seen all of those. Oh, but I mean, they're fun. They're great. I love those. I love Chris Pine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So uh, I guess getting into your stuff, uh, you've worked as an Australian diplomat and an international development advisor, which sounds fascinating. Uh, so what exactly did that job entail? And I mean, is there any overlap at all with your writing? Oh, working for the evil empire. Um, yeah, I'm kind of <laughs> slightly ashamed <laughs> of the past. Yeah, being a diplomat, that's a really fancy word for it. You're basically just a, a cog in the bureaucratic system, except you're posted overseas in an embassy. So it sounds vaguely glamorous, but it's not. Yeah, so I worked in Timor-Leste for several years, and that was right after independence, or about 10 years after independence. So it was really interesting watching the birth of a state and seeing what a rough process that was. And a lot of the personalities you met who are now the rulers of state or like the heads of government, 
you know, used to be rebels. They used to be, you know, guerrilla fighters. Sometimes there were guys who, you know, had just like walked up and down to the UN for 20 years saying, listen to me, listen to me about the freedom of my nation. And it was really interesting to see how certain personality types were very effective in gaining independence for their nation through a variety of means of violence or persuasion. And then seeing how once they had come into power, those same personality traits were absolutely the worst at uh, creating a diplomatic, stable nation afterwards. You know, like the charismatic rebel fighter uh, who then gets power is probably actually not the best guy to listen to various viewpoints and, you know, create a state where everyone has a say. And there was a lot of like, let's sweep the violence of the past under the carpet. So that's what I was thinking about a bit for She Who Became the Sun, because obviously it's about those rebels who try and create a new state um, and the personalities that it takes to be that kind of person who can imagine, you know, change at that level. So spoilers, you know, uh, (laughs) the characters in my book do not become the best leaders of a new and free and independent nation. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of situation I feel like that is most interesting to read about or write about. Uh, Living it was probably uh, not quite the same. (laughs) Yeah. And also my book doesn't deal with any of that messy aftermath, you know. Maybe C.L. Clarke's later books and their series will look at that messy building and bringing back together. But that's not my aim. So I didn't do any of that. I took the easy out. Well, uh, quote unquote, easy out there. But yeah, no, definitely looking forward to C.L. Clark's work as well. But yeah, so I also understand you have a background in writing some romantic fanfic. How did that get started? And I think I maybe see uh, some influence in your writing with maybe uh, some kneeling. <laughs> ah, the kneeling. Um, better to be known for kneeling than the other things that people send me emojis about, which I will not say on a fact. The romantic fisting? <laughs> oh, I can't believe you said that out loud. Uh, yeah, I can't believe I'm trailed around the internet by the fisting emoji. Um yeah, well, that's a fanfic. <laughs> it, it's been mentioned. It's been mentioned multiple times on this podcast oh before. God. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, who hasn't written a bit of fanfic in their life these days? I used to be so ashamed of it um, when I was querying and when I was on submission. You know, auth- um, agents and editors would say, "Oh, where did you learn to write?" And I'd be like, "Oh, there were some writing communities on the internet, and that's how I learned." And then they would just laugh and say, oh, you can say you just wrote fanfic. And I'm like, oh, okay, the world has changed. <laughs> uh, yeah, so fanfic is you know, hyper-emotional, and that's really what appeals to me. It's not even so much character-driven or plot-driven as it is that search to recreate a specific emotional experience and you know, have some very sympathetic readers, you know, uh, take that emotional experience into themselves and sort of resonate with it. There's none of that irony or layers of detachment you can get in some literary fiction, you know, like autofiction. Even though you're writing about yourself, there's that layer of uh, intellectual remove and how you're playing with the form. And I think the great thing about fanfic is it's purely sincere and, like, it's really easy to mock sincerity. And when people do make fun of fanfic, it's often, oh, these usually women and queer kids and their deeply felt emotions. And there's 
no irony there and everything's laid out like their emotions are on their sleeve but i think that's really brave takes a certain courage to write down exactly what you're feeling and then hope that other people will feel the truth of that and so you know that's always what i was looking for in trad published books and i never really found it for a long time Uh, but it's starting to happen now and i think because a lot of authors have come out of the fanfic world and so i think that's what i wanted to do and she became the sun it's not obviously a romance but I like to hope it has that sincerity of emotion and a trueness to it, even if it is in a sort of fictional, a fantastical situation. Like we don't have eunuchs anymore, but I like to hope that the experience of being a eunuch is actually a, a true emotional experience that people will understand through their own perspectives of alienation or dysphoria or whatever. Yeah, and I think that hits exactly on something that it always kind of bugs me when I hear people say, oh, like, I didn't have anything in common with the main character. I just, like, couldn't identify with them. And I'm like, I don't think I've ever read a story that was well-written and I could not identify with the main character, right? Like, you have some kind of similar experience, if nothing else, because you're human. Yeah, absolutely. And the skill is yeah, evoking that on the page, the humanity. And then if you've done your job well, I think any kind of reader should be able to see something uh, relatable there. Yeah, absolutely. You've also said before that uh, editors and other publishing professionals will probably not share or be familiar with uh, necessarily the particular marginalizations of the authors they work with. And I guess that can kind of understandably lead to skewed critical feedback. So how do you recommend authors go about handling this? I think you really need a set of early readers who know what you're trying to achieve. So I guess in fanfic world, we always talk about the id, uh, the Freudian id, but I guess it's that emotional core that's not intellectual and that's unfiltered. So in a work, you're trying to evoke a certain emotion, experience, that unfiltered quality. And I think you really need someone who gets that who resonates with what you're trying to achieve. Um, and that's the most important first part of the, the drafting process is to get that down on the page. And it's very hard if the people who are reading that first draft aren't sympathetic and don't sort of grasp on that fundamental level, like, you know, what it is and they're not sympathetic to it. I think only after you've got that laid out that you should show it to an external audience who aren't necessarily like simpatico. And then I guess they stand in for the broader world. Uh, like I suppose to bring it to a concrete example, like my story and she became the sun, like the character of Oyang, like it is a, a trans narrative and it is looking really closely at the struggles of shame and gender and dysphoria. And I needed people around me at that very beginning of the process who understood that as I did, who were also genderqueer people like me. Uh, there would have been no point giving it to someone who was, you know, completely straight, completely cis, who had never struggled with those same things. So I had that group of people and that was fantastic. That was the only thing that enabled me to write it. And then I gave it to the agents and I gave it to the editors. And 
they didn't necessarily understand that. And it's really interesting seeing them read that because they didn't actually grasp what the core of that story was. Uh, They still liked it and they saw that there was a story there, but they didn't actually uh, resonate with what I felt was the, the key parts of that story. So I guess what I'm saying is, yeah, make sure you have people around you at the beginning who know what you're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's where the importance of things like writing groups come in, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't have done it without a writing group. Yeah. Um, And I guess on the note of writing advice and whatnot, uh, what has been the most helpful advice you've encountered as an author? It was one of my writing group who said this um, at the beginning. And they were like, you know, forget about writing what you think you should write. Forget about writing like fancy literature. You know, just write what you want to write. Write what pleases you, write what brings you joy. Because for ages I'd been like, oh, I want to write a book, I want to write a book. And somehow in my head I had this kind of really wanky, literary, intellectual, serious work. You know, I will write a great work of serious literature and obviously it never got written. And eventually my friend came along and was like, you know what, just write a list of tropes down, write everything you want to see, just pour it onto the page, have fun, see what happens. And that's what I did. And then I ended up with a book. So it worked. Yeah, I I was actually listening to an interview with C.S. Picat earlier today, and they were saying exactly the same thing. Just come up with a list of everything you want to see in a book and then write that. (laughs) It's funny you say that because it was C.S. Picat who said that to me. C.S. Picat was a member (laughs) of my writing group. It's a small world. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, the Melbournians are taking over, we always say. We used to joke 10 years ago. We we're like, ah, oh, it's going to be the Melbourne clique. One day they'll know our names. And we'd sit there and like cackle evilly. And now it's happening. We're like, Melbourne, taking over. Yeah, I know. I mean, uh, I think you've said there's been at least like, what, three people uh, from that writing group are being published this year or maybe in the next uh, couple years? Yeah. Um, well, C.S. Picat was already, you know, published. So uh, C.S. Picat has Dark Rise coming out, which is going to be amazing. Yeah, I'm reading it now. It's great. <laughs> oh, are you? Oh, yeah. Vanessa Lynn has Only a Monster coming out next February. Uh, Anna Cowan is an amazing romance author who writes the most queer Regency romances um, you've ever met. And she has, she'll have a new one coming out next year too. So it's just been phenomenal uh, having us all sort of come together at the same time and seeing our books come out. Uh, really a dream come true. Yeah. And I love that you're not all in the exact same genre too. I feel like there probably is a lot added by that. Yeah. And yet there's also a commonality between all our works, which is that hyper-emotional sort of core and often gender queerness as well is in there, especially in C.S. Picat and Anna Cowan's books. So it's good to have like minds, but that are coming from slightly different perspectives genre-wise. Stay tuned for more after the break. Extra dimensional analyst and author Kel Ingston has neither the time nor the money to forcibly teleport you to the magical continent of Erna. But what Kel can do for you is offer you Wood Castle, book one of the Quartz Divided series, for free. This is not a ploy, nor is it of any danger to your person. You need not provide email, blood, nor even a fragment of your thumbnail to receive this outstanding digital curiosity. Simply go to bit.ly slash kelingston to funnel the madness into your device of choice today. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash K-E-L-L-I-N-K-S-T-O-N. 
witch knights, necromancers, and perhaps the most badass amnesiac you'll ever meet wait for you on the other side. Click the link in the show notes to grab your free book today. Well, okay, so we have mentioned She Who Became the Sun for a while, but we haven't really dived into it yet. So do you have a pitch for the book? Okay, so it's a queer reimagining of the rise to power of the founding emperor of the Ming dynasty. Um, So it is based on history. It's set in the 14th century, which is when China had been conquered and was being ruled by the Mongols. So in reality, there was this guy who came along, and he was just like a peasant, a random nobody, Um, but he had this monumental ambition, God knows why. Like it was almost as if he woke up one morning and was like, you know what, I'm going to be the emperor, you know, I have a great destiny. And you're like, really, dude? really? But he did it. He became a monk. He became a rebel commander. He built himself this monster army and he kicked the Mongols out of China and he became the emperor. And you're like, okay, you know, nice work there. But I thought it'd be really interesting to take this guy who is obviously a terrible person and hugely ambitious, which is a really interesting combination of uh, characteristics and make him not a man. You know, to be emperor is such a a masculine role. It's being the ultimate patriarch. It's being the center of the world. You know, what happens when you twist that around and take the manliness out of it? I don't like to call my main character a woman because she's not, even though she uses the she, her pronouns. So I always say, yeah, let's just make him not a man. So yeah, it's uh, it was quite fun playing with that, playing with gender playing with fate, playing with ambition. Yeah, no, uh, I can definitely see the historical parallels in that. Um, (laughs) Not quite beat for beat, but definitely uh, Zoo. And I think Zoo is actually the name of the real life figure as well, right? Yeah, that's right. So it does like borrow the shells, like all the people, most of the people existed and they all have their names Um, and most of the events happened. But I have taken huge liberties with how it all went down. Yeah, I, I imagine that's part of the fun as well. If you can't take some liberties with it, uh, you might as well be writing a history book. Yeah, I get a bit of flack for not being historically accurate. I'm like, hey, it's like history <laughs> fanfic. It's fun. Like, why not twist things around to make them fit your narrative better, to hit a theme harder? So, you know, have fun. I wanted it to be entertaining. You know, if you want history, read the damn history book. I could not agree more. Yeah. So, I mean, you said that one of the key things is you wanted to switch around and uh, play with gender and twist that very patriarchal man uh, from the past and twist him into something new. Uh, Not necessarily a woman, but definitely uh, not a man. Uh, So, I mean, why why that decision? Uh, What drove that? And how did you find that affecting the story? Hmm. So, yeah. I guess in Chinese culture, filial piety is a huge thing. You know, it's a respect for your ancestors, respect for the elders who raised you. All their hopes and dreams are in you. This is what we're like always raised with. God, my mother was so into these, uh, this genre of books. I call it like the Chinese hardship tale. It's always about, you know, we left the cultural revolution. We starved. We came to America. We worked in a Chinese laundry 24 hours a day. We suffered and we gave everything we had so our children can be lawyers you know, that kind of thing. Uh, And, you know, the lawyer child, you know, then owes that huge debt of obligation to their parents that can never be fully repaid. 
So that's a huge thing in my community. Um, and even though I'm in the diaspora, I was not spared that whole, like, you must you grow up and pay it back. And uh, yes, but anyway, the person who can pay it back best is always the son. And diaspora communities are often a little uh, stuck in the past compared to what's happening in the source land. So the little microcosm of Chinese community I grew up in was somehow stuck in like a slightly pre-cultural revolution era of boys are best. So I had male cousins and for sure the male cousins were kind of held up as the exemplar and they all became doctors. Anyway, not that I'm bitter or anything. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I was filled with this slight rage of like, Screw you, Confucius, like, uh, which, you know, a lot of us in the diaspora have a very ambivalent relationship to our culture because we grew up kind of torn between, you know, seeing Western culture with this independence and personal desires. And then you're sort of like, oh, but I, I do love and respect and feel an attachment to my own culture with its conflicting values. And, oh, what do I do? So on one hand, you know, I do feel very Chinese. On the other hand, there are aspects of that Chinese culture that I I feel very ambivalent towards, such as the patriarchal notions, the sexism, the racism, the non-acknowledgement of queerness. So all of that is baked into She Who Became the Sun, that ambivalence. And yes, the fuck you Confucius is <laughs> the heart of it uh, by taking, you know, someone, a character who's literally going to step into the most, you know, powerful central symbolic role of the Confucian system, the emperor, the man, and be like, you know what? I'm here. I'm not a man and screw you. You know, I'm going to subvert it from the inside out. So this book does not bring down an empire, but it twists the concept of empire by saying, do you think you can still have the same patriarchal empire that you had originally when I, who is the emperor, am not? you know, a, a man, which was previously the definition of emperor. So, you know, uh, that's where it came from. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, fantastic. And uh, I really do love the number of stories that have been coming out recently that seem to be either twisting or breaking or destroying or at least re-examining the whole concept of empire. Yeah, like the Jasmine Throne is an amazing example of that. I'm always saying, oh, Tasha, you wrote the book I wanted to write, damn you. Uh, she does it so well. With the uh, the patriarchal empire of the you know the Indian Hindu classics, and it's just like I'm going to burn it down. Yeah, I, I love the Jasmine Throne. That was probably one of my favorite reads this year. And yeah, I, I think uh, you mentioned Tasha and you mentioned C. L. Clark and. I mean, combined, you three are like the, what is it, the meme that's going around? Like the Holy Trinity of uh, <laughs> the Sapphic meme, Brick. yeah, the, the Sapphic there we trio, go. <laughs> the, the Holy Sapphic Trinity. Yeah, I've gotten a good mileage out of that. <laughs> it's fun. And yeah, I recently saw uh, you mentioning that uh, the color of your covers is saffron, uh, spelled like the S-A-P-P. -P. Yeah, I love yeah, that. Yeah, all credit to Foz Meadows for that one. That was not my own invention, saffron. Which is funny because I don't think of my book as super sapphic, but look, I'll, I'll ride that train. Um, I'm always like, oh, my book is more about genderqueer identity. There are sapphic elements in it for sure. And if you see that in there, you know, I'm not going to stand in your way. But um, yeah, it's more about the genderqueers taken over. Yeah. And I love how both kind of like the, well, I was going to say both the hero and anti-hero, but I, I feel like your book is mostly populated with arguably anti-heroes than straight up heroes. 
Yeah, uh, I found it really funny when the UK put on the cover copy, what was it, uh, their tagline? It was like, rebel, warrior, hero. And I'm like, who's the hero? There, there's literally no hero in this book. But okay, it sounds cool, so let's leave it. Fair enough. I don't even think I've seen that cover copy. I almost uh, exclusively avoid any kind of cover copy. I look at the pretty art and then I dive into the book. That's the best way. Uh, that's why I love reading manuscripts because they don't come with cover copy yet. You literally just like open the Word doc and you dive right in and it's uh, a great experience. Yeah. So uh, you've talked about not strictly following history and taking some liberties with it. So how did you personally choose to strike that balance, the mix of actual historical events and people uh, and then taking some narrative liberties to suit the story? Yeah, I tried not to be wedded to history too much. You know, I wanted to tell a particular kind of story with particular themes about gender and destiny. And I was honestly like, whatever I can bend towards the purpose of telling that story more clearly, I'm going to do. And like one thing about history is it takes so bloody long. Like an empire doesn't fall overnight. So the whole slow, deathly collapse of the Yuan Empire took like 30 years, you know. Uh, the main character, Zhu Yuanzhang, who became the Hongwu Emperor, now he was 60 or something by the time he actually sat on the throne. I don't have time to wait around to tell the entire story of someone from the age of like five till 60, especially when you want to tell an emotional arc inside of that, like individual romances, individual you know, personal experiences between the characters that operates on a much shorter time scale like months, maybe years. I know there is a genre of the intergenerational tale, but that's not what I wanted to do because I find that's always quite detached. It's like you zoom out and you're telling, this is a story of four generations of women, you know, over 200 years. That's a thing, but that's not the hyper-emotional kind of very deeply delved into story that I like to tell. So um, I totally just compressed the timeline. I squished everything down. If there's some distance that it took eight months to take your army and your horses and everything over, I'd be like, I don't care about that aspect. It's not the story that I want to tell. So I think I compressed it down to five years. Um, I tried to keep the major battles. I tried to keep the major figures. And because I was a fanfic author, I find it really fun to think of like, oh, this person, uh, why did he do what he did? Why did he change sides? Why did he betray so-and-so? And you just sort of play with him like that. But in some cases, there was a figure I'm like, oh, that's kind of annoying. It doesn't really fit with my theme. I'm going to change this guy. Like there was a guy I split in half and he literally became two characters. So the characters, the warrior prince and the scholar prince were actually a single historical character. And it was a guy who's really interesting. Um, he was half Chinese and half Mongol and he was a great warrior and he was very conflicted about his um, – his two sides, which he dealt with by becoming the most Mongol guy who ever existed, despite being half Chinese. And because I wanted to tell a story about different types of masculinity, I was like, I'm going to split you into your component parts to highlight that. So you're going to have the, the scholar Chinese side of you and the hyper warrior Mongol side. So, you know, I didn't feel any compunction about doing that. It's fun. You know, that guy's dead. He doesn't care. Yeah. And I mean, I love the concept of whatever serves the story, because ultimately that's what you're doing is you're telling a story and uh, you would think you would want the most powerful emotional story you can get. 
Yeah, but you always get the nitpickers out there who are like, peanuts didn't exist in the 14th century. And, <laughs> oh, your saddles are made of leather, not wood. I'm like, oh, come on. Come on. Oh, man. I guess I can maybe appreciate that mindset, but that is absolutely not me. There's a lot of stories where if there's like some kind of in-depth world building background and minutia of detail, I kind of just skim over it and I get to the emotional bits. Yeah, I think it depends what kind of reader you are. Like, I'm sympathetic to the idea that there are people who are very into the details of worlds. Um, they just really love that. It's part of the joy of immersion in fiction. And there are also people who know a lot about history and they love seeing it recreated accurately. And it's like, okay, this book is not for you. But not every book has to be for everybody, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and I, I don't think there is a book written that is for everyone. Truer words never spoken, yep. Yeah. Uh, and I, I really like the concept of the hyper emotionality. I'm going to have to start using that phrase more often because I definitely struggle to describe sometimes how if I'm not clicking with a story, a lot of times it's because I've been saying it's like, oh, you've got a zoomed out camera kind of just following around watching what's going on rather than getting right in the character's head and experiencing everything. Yeah, I was saying the other day to someone, like, if I don't get an emotional response from a story, it's almost like it didn't exist to me. Like, I forget it as soon as I close the book. But to have a story really stick with me, like I got to feel it. I got to live it, you know, along with the characters. And that's not the same for everyone. But yeah, I'm glad that we're both the kind who like emotional stuff. Yeah. I mean, if a story sticks with me for days or weeks or whatever after I read it, it's normally on an emotional level and it's very rarely, oh, wow, they just really nailed the saddles that they used for those horses. <laughs> or it's like, oh, that was just so clever. The layers of metatextual <laughs> interplay. I mean, you know, for some people, they do love an intellectual puzzle, but each yeah. to their own. Yep, absolutely. Uh, the world would be a much more boring place if we all liked exactly the same things. Um, yeah, so you've also uh, mentioned kind of the central theme of destiny as well. And that seems like both a cultural and narrative challenge. So what sort of difficulties did you face with this theme and how did you go about tackling those? Yeah, so I didn't actually write this book as a fantasy. I wrote it as a historical fiction in the style of a Chinese palace drama. In the original drafts, and in fact, the book that I sold to Tor originally, it had no magic. It had no destiny. It was like straight up, you know, this is the real world. Of course, people believed in destiny, and that can be just as powerful. What you're trying to do is create that past world where the supernatural was a part of the everyday experience anyway, just through people's belief, uh, whether it be in ghosts and ancestors and uh, reincarnation and fate. So, in those early drafts, it was simply the belief in destiny that drew people along. And then I had to make it a fantasy, which was quite an interesting process because once you add magic to a story, it really does, you know, the question then becomes, why didn't you use magic to solve that, you know, logistical problem in your book? You have to add a layer of stuff that doesn't fundamentally affect how people reacted to the situations they found themselves in. So I guess what I did was I made that layer of belief real. Yeah, so now fate does exist as a thing. And yet it's only as powerful as you believe. Like Jew does literally take the destiny of her brother. But I think it's only as powerful as she 
believes it to be, like having that in the story world, having the mandate of heaven, you know, which is, is shown in a sort of certain magical way. There's sparkly lights and stuff. It doesn't mean you will become the emperor. So it's really only a potential. So I think there are many characters in the book who possess that potential and they all believe that they could be become the emperor, but it's actually still not nailed down in the book, like who will become the emperor. So, yeah, it's tricky to, to tread that line between how, how much do you set your characters on rails, you know. That's the problem with destiny. You say, well, the outcome's already foreordained, then it doesn't make for a very exciting story sometimes. Yeah, and I... I think it's interesting that you said that destiny is somewhat of a literal thing in the story because I wasn't entirely sure reading it if it was. Um, I think you kind of walked the line where it was a little bit ambiguous. Like in the beginning, I wasn't ever truly convinced that Ju actually stole her brother's destiny compared to just the fortune teller was really misogynistic and just uh, thought that a girl would turn out to be nothing. And that's why he said what he said. Yeah, I think I, I tried to keep it still a little bit ambiguous and, uh, you know, because that that's what makes it interesting. Like I said, there are many people who have that sort of stamp on their head in this book, uh, which is like in history. There were eight contenders for the throne, like who could have become emperor in this period. And I narrowed that field down to about five. So there's five people in this book and the sequel who have a pretty good shot at the throne and they all think they will and they all feel like they've been chosen because they have this power. But only one of them will win. Or will they? So we'll see. <laughs> and I mean, given the historical kind of reimagining nature of it, uh, I'm sure it's a complete mystery whoever will end up being <laughs> the emperor. Yeah, I get told off a lot for spoilers when I'm like, she becomes the emperor. I'm like, well, it's kind of baked into the premise. But I will like to say, I think I have some twists up my sleeve. It's not all smooth sailing. I have messed with the timeline quite a lot. Yeah. And I mean, as an author, I feel like there's so many emotional tools you have in your belt for making that journey interesting, even if we have a decent idea of like where the end plot destination is. Mm. Yeah, I always feel like plot is almost the least interesting part yes. for me. It's about the emotional journey of the character through the plot. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I mean, I also think there's a reason why people are like, oh, who are your favorite characters of all time and not what are your favorite plot points of all time? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's possible to write good books that don't have a character at all, really like mysteries. Some mysteries work in that clockwork way and it's very satisfying nonetheless. But yeah, for me, it's like, what do you have favorite books of all time. It's definitely character-driven books. And I mean, I guess, yeah, we should also preface this with saying, like, as we have been saying, this is definitely uh, the type of readers that we seem to be, and everyone kind of likes different things. But yeah, so as someone who definitely uh, falls into the lawful neutral category, uh, I'm curious, what's the appeal of asceticism for you, and how did you apply that towards writing a main character with a monk background? <laughs> lawful neutral, yeah. Uh, often my family will say I'm full up lawful evil. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, I should be more ashamed of it, but I'm like, oh, you know, I am very lawful. No, I think it can be lawful to a fault. It's very hard to change a system when you play by the rules, you know, especially an unfair evil system that you find yourself within. I, I do admire the chaotic people who have the courage to kind of, you know, break out of that system, but I'm, I'm far too, I, I feel a great anxiety at the thought of breaking out of the rules and doing bad things. Yeah, so I guess 
you know, much like my initial attraction as a child to the idea of Vulcans who can control their emotions perfectly, you know, I guess I was always really drawn to the idea of, you know, if there are a set of rules that you can live your life by um, that will remove all doubts about whether you're doing good or bad and also about whether you're being socially appropriate or not socially appropriate, you know, I would just love to have that set of rules and I want to follow them and that way, you know, all this doubt and anxiety will be resolved, you know. It's like that fantasy of being able to live out a perfectly worry-free existence, you know, in a way. Yes, which is the monkly life. So you have uh, taken the choice to control yourself, but in controlling yourself you've actually found an emotional freedom, a, a relief from the, the worries and the constant social anxiety. Anyway, I, I can only have this fantasy because I'm not a religious person at all, and I know the reality of being a monk or a nun is very different because I've met real monks and nuns, and actually they're all amazing people. So some of the nuns I've met were total like iconoclasts from like the 1960s. They were these badass old ladies who you know had been given a choice to become a, a mother or a housewife, and they're like, no, I'm going to make social change. And the way to do that was apparently to become a nun and move to like East Timor. So uh, anyway, yeah, but the monks in my book are bad monks. Um, they are not that kind of monk that I always like <laughs> dreamed about. So I don't think I achieved my monkly goal in this book, but maybe next book, who knows? Uh, I think Oyang is more of a has more of that id, you know, as we say that control and um, eradication of the self for the purpose of a duty. So I guess that's the the monkish element. But next book, I'll get the monks right. Yes, uh, with Ayung, I definitely uh, many times wanted to just strangle him into allowing himself <laughs> to be happy. <laughs> He's terrible. Uh, <laughs> every time people are like Ayung, my beautiful broken you know boy, I'm just like fuck, I hate him. <laughs> He's awful um, <laughs> for sure, and I love to hate him. Yeah, well, I, I think you've said before that he was actually arguably kind of the character that most resembles you in real life. Is that true? <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, that's terribly telling about, yeah, am I a misogynistic <laughs> uh, rule following to the point of insanity um, eunuch character? Yes, I guess I am. He's not my favorite character, but he is the character most like me. Sure, and I think you can have a character similar to you without sharing all of those traits. Yeah, absolutely. Now, he has the shame. He has the gender feels that I guess I've always felt. So in that sense, he's like me. Talking more kind of, I guess, about the uh, drafting process, you said before that it's pretty iterative, which I found interesting, uh, where you have many passes and each one you kind of refine your core characters and the overall plot. Can you talk a little bit more about this process and maybe how Ju changed from inception to the final character that made it into the book? I always thought that I was one of those, what do they call it, panthers and plotters. I always thought I was a plotter. I had planned everything out in exquisite detail beforehand, and I was simply executing that framework as I went along. But as I wrote this book, I discovered that I'm not really a plotter. I think it's in each iteration that I discover new things that I want to pursue, which then radically requires like changing the rest of the book that I'd had. Um, so in each pass, I would go deeper, 
find new things that interested me, find new angles on the characters or the plot. So yeah, it took like six or eight passes and each time it changed quite dramatically. Uh, the last pass was, I'm going to turn this historical fiction into a fantasy. So that was like a big one. But yeah, actually the the deepest changes happened on the character level. Um, so Drew, the protagonist, I didn't f- settle on her personality until the very last draft before the one where it became a fantasy. So I think I had this idea of what kind of character I'd like. But, you know, when I put her in the story, it didn't work. So initially she was this complete void. She was like a sociopathic character. Uh, Her ruthlessness was sort of dialed up to 11, but for no discernible reason. And the world of the monastery, which in the current version, you know, is a regular monastery. But in the very first draft, it was a brutal, corrupt, hypocritical system of the monasteries, which was actually closer to what they were like at the time where people were monks because it gave them an opportunity to, uh, steal money off people. Um, they lived very comfortable lives. It had very little to do with devotion or religion. It was just a means to an end. And so the character of Jew who arose up through that monastery was someone who knew how to bend systems to her desire. She was she was killing people left, right, and center. You know, she had absolutely no moral compass. But there was no real reason why she was like that. It was almost like cruelty for the sake of cruelty. So I wrote a draft like that. It didn't really work. Um, she wasn't very sympathetic. Like, so for a start, you're working uphill because female characters are often, often perceived as unlikable. Ambition in a woman is very hard to make sympathetic for a variety of reasons that I guess we all know. Um, And the feedback was like, you have a sociopathic character who has literally nothing to hook a reader into. There's nothing sympathetic about her whatsoever. Depending on what kind of story you're telling, that's not necessarily bad, but I did want to tell an emotional story. So I realized I did have to make her sympathetic and relatable in some way. So that's why we get the whole sad little orphan story at the start now. And uh, she does, she comes out of a history now of gendered oppression. And that worked much better with the themes of the book. So I only discovered that after a few iterations. You got to write the wrong thing to find the right thing. And I think it was better for it. Yeah, I, I think uh, we actually, I think, mentioned this in our Grey Morality episode, which you mentioned that you'd listened to. So that was probably interesting uh, hearing us discuss you. But uh, <laughs> you managed to make uh, her sympathetic enough that she can do some pretty awful things, but you're still rooting for her. Yeah, when you lay it out on the page, um, some of the stuff she does is unconscionable and unpardonable, really, the betrayals that she does, especially of you know, her wife, I would say, towards the end. Yeah, but I guess because you've seen her as a nobody, you kind of root for the underdog. Now that's very powerful. Like the wanting to see uh, the underdog and their full rise to power. So I guess that cathartic desire to see the underdog become the emperor and crush everyone kind of overpowers your moral qualms at seeing them do a bit of child murder, you know? (laughs) Yeah, what's a little bit of child murder? between friends (laughs) but yeah i mean i think also for me part of it uh that i enjoyed was to a certain extent 
the main villain is kind of systemic rather than any one character. And so uh, whatever Ju might be doing, she's doing it against the system as well and trying to twist that to her advantage. So that always, uh, I think, helps rather than just being like, oh, no, I'm doing this because uh, everything I see before me, I want it to be mine. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I guess they're, they're fighting the patriarchy. Uh, yeah, Ju is succeeding and Ouyang is failing to fight the patriarchy. So uh, I think you are very aware that it's um, this overarching framework that defines their lives. And yeah, seeing someone struggle against this big, unchangeable thing is quite appealing. And so kind of on a similar note, uh, you said that you started out with a lot more point of view characters and kind of whittled down those number of viewpoints to a smaller core cast to focus more on the emotions. So, I mean, obviously, Ju had to be one of those. But how did you choose which characters to feature from their point of view? And how did you use that to heighten the emotional experience? When I was writing initially, I was really trying to recreate the experience of one of those Chinese historical dramas. And they have like 80 characters and the camera will follow often you know, each of those 80 characters around as though they have the point of view. And I was trying to do that in book form. But what that creates, I found, is that zoomed out perspective. You're not going deep into the characters and having their emo- and following each one on this very intense emotional journey. It was just too diffuse. So I think I had like eight point of view, um, including some of the you know, quasi-villains uh, who aren't like the big bad, really. They're just kind of people standing in the way of Jew as she tries to get what she wants. So I really focused on, you know, the people whose stories mattered and which showed the theme of struggling against gender constraints and gender boxes, So uh, which turned out to be two from each storyline. So it's Jew and her wife and Oyang and his boyfriend, I suppose you could say. Each of those characters, you know, has an arc that deals with gender in a particular way, I think. You know, they each have a story. Whereas previously of the eight points of view, there are a bunch that didn't have a story. You're really just using that point of view, usually for a cheap throwaway kind of shot of like, here's someone who doesn't know who Ju really is and we're seeing her from the outside. And they get a little like zing of excitement because the audience knows something that the point of view character doesn't know. So you'd have like one of my big bads is called Chen and he's like, hmm, what is he? He's a warlord and he's very brutal. And he sort of sees Ju as a potential rival, but he doesn't really know the truth about her. He doesn't know what she's capable of. And she often keeps her cards really close to her chest. And if we're in his point of view, the audience gets this little like, ooh, you know, I know that Jew is capable of all these things that you don't know and, you know, has an identity that you have no idea about and that's like a little beat of excitement. But you're going to hit that beat so many times before it becomes boring. You know, it doesn't really move the plot along. It doesn't develop the characters at all. So I think it's trying to, I can cut those out. It's best to just stick with. You know, the characters who you go into and you develop them deeply, uh, even if it's kind of tough sometimes. I think it's interesting uh, that you point out Chen is like sort of kind of one of the big bads, just because I often felt that, you know, we could be seeing Ju as a similar role if this was told from Chen's point of view. Yeah, uh, I think 
I can't remember now what lines are left in the book in the final draft or not, but I think they see a kindred spiritness in each other. Uh, Chen is actually the figure symbolically, I think, is like what the male, the real historical Zhu Yuanzhang would have been like. He's this tyrannical figure of pure ambition and cruelty. So I have him on the page and then I'm contrasting a female Jew who sees what she could have been and chooses not to be like that. So I guess that was the purpose of him, although he was a real person in his own right. <laughs> but again, it's always fun to uh, twist that to a bit to suit your purposes as a writer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so looking forward a bit, do you have any future projects you can talk about? <laughs> uh, oh, don't ask me this question because I'm a very <laughs> slow writer and I'm still writing the sequel to She Who Became the Sun. I do have a couple of ideas up my sleeve and they're very underbaked and thinking about them fills me with dread. So I'm going to say no. I um, <laughs> have had this like idea for a Bible-based retelling and it's really like a big, scary, terrifying idea because like, do you really want to take on the Bible? Do you really? And also, I don't know if we're reaching the end of this uh retelling of mythical and historical figures kind of phase because you know have you seen how there are heaps of books coming out that retell like the classics the greek myths um in sort of a feminist modern way and uh yeah i don't because i'm such a slow writer i'm like if i take five years to write this book you know will it be too late so ah let's see yeah, is that the, um, I know you've mentioned before, you have this big amorphous literary idea with religious faith and asceticism again. Um, so is that that Bible retelling idea? Yeah, yeah, I guess it would be. And I'm really into, uh, there's a whole bunch of like feminist artists from the, I guess the 80s, 90s, Louise Bourgeois, Kiki Smith, they're these sculptures of women in like horrific pain or they're screaming in anguish and they're just so visceral and emotional and raw and I'm just kind of like oh I want that feeling in a book um of like the female biblical characters like crawling across the desert uh screaming um <laughs> and I'm sure it'll be subversive in some way you know they always say like a book starts with a vibe and two scenes and then you kind of build on it from there so that's the vibe but I don't have the scenes yet so maybe it'll never turn into anything yeah. Um, yeah. And I know you said before, I think you actually compared this idea to uh, Victoria Schwab's Addie LaRue, where putting it off and putting it off for a while, just because, you know, you may be not quite ready to write that story yet. Yeah. Um, I haven't read Addie LaRue yet, actually, though I keep meaning to. I feel like from the sounds of it, that's quite a timeless book. So she could probably sit on it for 10 years and write it and... Um, it's still as relevant as it always would have been. Whereas, you know, I'm always worried. Maybe I shouldn't worry so much about the, you know, uh, what are the trends of fiction? Like when I started writing a Chinese-based historical fiction, like nothing like that really existed. I was already writing this book when the Poppy War came out or even when the Poppy War was announced. And I've just seen this explosion now in Chinese-inspired um, fantasy and... You know, I kind of feel, is this a bubble? Is it going to pop? And then you get really anxious. And maybe it's best not to think about that. Maybe you're just going to write what the heart wants you to write. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, what what was that best advice you ever had as a writer again? 
<laughs> Thank you for reminding me. Yeah, write what you love. <laughs> so maybe I, yeah, I got to stick with it. Uh, wait till I'm ready. 10 years from now, you'll see my masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Although, uh, I mean, She Who Became the Sun was not exactly an easy idea, I feel like, to tackle. So who knows? Maybe uh, you're just good at tackling these tough ideas. Yeah. And She Who Became the Sun also took me 10 years to write. So there you go. <laughs> oh, uh, okay. So yeah, I guess uh, taking a brief step away from your work then, are there any books that you've read lately and you can recommend? Uh, where to start? Um, I was in a bit of a reading slump lately, but then I just read a bunch of bangers in a row. Uh, Summer Suns by Lee Mandelo is coming out in September. And that is a Southern Appalachian Gothic with street racing and ghosts. And it's a really good examination of a kind of homophobic Southern masculinity and what happens when it bumps up against queerness. Uh, and it's boys being dumb, it's fast cars, haunting ghosts, um, lost chances, which I really love. Um, yeah, it's all about regrets and realizing too late after people are already dead what you could have had, what you should have had, but you were too afraid or didn't know how to see what was there. Uh, and then making, you know, a new path for yourself after that loss. So it's really good. It's really visceral. Uh, you really feel that like sticky sweat of like a Southern summer. And I've also read, Emily Tesh has a, a new book that's absolutely incredible. It's this science fiction military uh, fiction about terrible teen space terrorists, basically. But you absolutely start in their mindset of why, what they do is necessary. Um, they're all brainwashed. And it's an absolutely incredible look at gender in a military setting in a futuristic world where um, genocide is always possible. And it's just one of the most powerful character narrative growth arcs that I've ever read. I've never started a book being like, you're awful and I hate you and I hope the worst happens to you, to by maybe halfway through going, I love you, you're amazing, keep up with the good work, you're <laughs> trying so hard and I really want you to be a good person, you know? Anyway, so those are two that I just loved. Yeah, and I'm jealous. Uh, the book reviewer in me is used to getting books before they release, but before they're even announced, ah. <laughs> yeah, um... I would say the title of it, but I don't know what its actual title is. They've changed it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the perils. I get that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and so also while I have you here, uh, I don't think there's many people I can really ask for this, uh, but I've been curious about them for a while. Are there any C dramas you can recommend? I'm actually the worst person to ask about this because I'm not up to date <laughs> at all. C dramas are like 80 hours long. At a minimum, they're a real time investment. And I used to watch a lot of them for research purposes back when I was writing She Who Became the Sun. But they are now all really old dramas. Yeah, obviously, The Untamed is like super popular and word of honor. They're all what you call Dunme dramas. They're uh, gay, queer dramas um, with a lot of interpersonal sexual tension and they're really juicy and they have all those twists and turns. They're two slightly different genres. Untamed is uh, what we call like a cultivation fantasy. It deals with sort of Taoist powers um, of summoning the supernatural. But Word of Honor is a classic wuxia, which is the martial arts sects 
uh, and if you gain a particular high level of martial arts mastery, you can gain all these particular powers, almost like you can fly because you can jump so high. It looks like you're flying. So they both play with like classic Chinese story forms in fun modern ways, um, and they have all the the tropes and the betrayal and the lost love and the reincarnation and angst. So I think those two are good places to start if you've never watched any before. Okay, yeah, and I'm absolutely sensing again that uh, overall theme in this episode of the hyper emotionality. Yeah, if you don't cry, it's not worth watching. Uh, so a good Chinese <laughs> drama will turn on the waterworks for sure. There you go. Yeah, uh, I definitely enjoy seeking out media that likes to uh, stomp all over my heart. Yeah, so a uh, way I kind of like to close these interviews out is just asking you what's one thing you're excited about right now? Yeah, honestly, I just really want my book to be out in the world so I don't have to think about it anymore. And then I really <laughs> want that feeling of delving into something new with no expectations I want to get out of this house. Melbourne has been in lockdown for in and out of lockdown for the last 18 months. And it's been a really rotten time. And I am missing going to the art gallery and getting new ideas just shoved into my head. And there's a whole bunch of new art exhibitions coming out soon that I just want to get to. Uh, there's the Winter Impressionists um, coming from the Museum of Boston, I think, to Melbourne. Uh, in London, there's this amazing exhibition by Tracy Emin, who's one of my favorite feminist artists, who just, her female figurative paintings are just like emotions splashed on the page. Like you look at it and you like recoil from like just the sensation of female pain uh, in these twisted bodies. And like, I just want that experience of looking at art again and filling my brain with fresh ideas. So that's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah, well, hopefully with the weird way time works in this episode coming out, uh, by the time people are listening to this, you'll have had all of that and your book will be out. <laughs> Hooray. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's been really uh, fun talking to you. Yeah, this was a ton of fun. Uh, I think that pretty much wraps up everything I have for you today, Shelley. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You can find Shelly Parker Chan on Twitter as Shelly P. Chan or at their website, ShellyParkerChan.com. If hyper-emotional historical fantasy sounds intriguing, be sure to pick up She Who Became the Sun. I absolutely adored it. As always, you can find us over at TheFantasyInn.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server, where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever be able to read. And if you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon, or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It really means the world. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.